thank you all for coming. Uh, as, as, as Jody said, um, I decided to, to do something scary tonight and read from a, a work in progress. Uh, I haven't ever read from this work before. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's a novel that's been giving me tremendous difficulties. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying it out on you. Uh, and I very much welcome your comments and, and, and your criticisms of what you hear, um, because that will just be enormously helpful for, 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 for me. You know, I think all of you who are writers know the dangers and frustrations of feeling like you're just endlessly in a vacuum, and at some point you need a reality check. So I'm inviting you to be my reality check um, here. Uh, as, as Jody said, the title is um, The Two Angels Came to Sodom in the Evening. It's my favorite verse from the Bible, uh, Genesis 19.1. Um, you, you don't need to know anything about that uh, for um, what I'm going to read tonight. I'm going to read three um, Three, three scenes, um, three sections. Uh, the first is a, is a very brief uh, te teaser scene that opens the novel uh, in, in the present moment, and then the novel sort of jumps back and traces the path of the characters uh, through many years uh, in order to return to this hopefully somewhat um, intriguing moment. Um, so, here's, so here's the way it opens at, at this point. Nobody's going to settle for anything less than you at this point, Drew tells Rory. You're the one who's got to talk to them. You're the one who's got to answer their infidel questions. They've been hungering all these years. Now they think they can finally smell blood. I think I can smell blood too, Rory says. Blood's got a really distinctive smell, don't you think? He doesn't look at Drew. How could he after all this? He stares out the window of his Senate office, and for an instant, lost almost as soon as it's found, he's no longer in D.C. He's back at Bountiful Mountaintop, waist deep in cool water, and he's come through the worst of it unharmed. Nothing can touch him. Nothing would dare. That's how armored he is. Are you even paying attention to what I'm saying, Drew asks. God loves the smell of blood, Rory tells him. That's where Cain went wrong. The Lord doesn't want the grain offering. The Lord's never wanted anything but blood. Anyway, I think I've always tried to pay attention to you, to Travis, to the angel. You can't exactly fault me for not having paid attention. I probably even paid too much attention some of the time. Anyway, how do you think we came so far? I'm trying not to think about any of that right now, Drew says and enough about the damn angel. That's how bad it's got. So are we going to do this or not? Five minutes, Rory hears himself saying. Just give me five more minutes with my blessed life. Then I'll happily go out there and surrender myself, and maybe we'll finally both be free. Okay, so as I say, we then jump back into the past. Um, the next scene, uh, 
is with Rory uh, and, his, and his racist, homophobic grandfather, um, with, with whom, in some peculiar way, uh, he's enchanted, um, because the old man simply talks and talks, and Rory loves to listen to stories and is willing to go anywhere um, that they might take him. Um, I think that's enough for, for, for this scene. Oh, so, 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 so Rory's, Rory's probably 15 at, 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 this, at this point. Sometimes when his father and Nate are out on one of their so-called expeditions, chipping fossilized seashells from a highway cut outside town, and his mother visits with her cousins, Papa Beaumont and Rory will slip away to tour the various properties scattered around Damascus Landing that the old man leases to tobacco farmers. The lucrative death harvest, as Rory's father describes his father-in-law's investments, they take the ancient Ford pickup, Bathsheba, Papa Beaumont has dubbed his fire engine red consort. Rory loves traveling the county's back roads, isolated farmhouses in poor to middling repair, an occasional row of abandoned sharecropper shacks melting back into dirt, all set in undulating fields, lime green in spring, emerald in summer, olive in autumn. He loves the old curing barns that have, that have mostly seen better days, the occasional remnant of surviving forest, the various overgrown family cemeteries with limestone markers knocked askew. This afternoon, the weather's nice, but as Papa Beaumont remarks, squinting skyward, not too bright. In Bathsheba's cab, his veranda monologue segues seamlessly into its vehicular counterpart, counterpart you ask me, he says, revisiting one of his more deeply held insights, a nation's natural foundation is land ownership. Think about it. Renters don't care the way owners do. So wouldn't you think it might make sense for any halfway responsible republic to restrict voting to folks who have an actual stake in the country? That's the trouble with the Nubian element, if you want to know the truth. They never had a stake. Sad to say, we never give it to them. And, it's too, and now it's too late. The lack and the hurt's too deep. But we should never have brought them in the first place. That was just plain greed and stupidity on our part. We were given separate continents for a reason. And I hate to say it, Rory, but we've gone and guaranteed ourselves a race war. I don't envy what you're going to live to see. Rough justice, more blood in the streets than you can imagine. What happened to Marxist Luther King was just the beginning. Feeble sunlight paints the fields. His papa is silent for a while. When he speaks next, his voice is more animated, no longer in what Rory thinks of as drone mode. I was thinking of taking you somewhere I never took anybody else. You comfortable coming along for the ride? Sure, Rory says. I'm game to go anywhere. Well then, did I ever tell you about the going to sleep voice? I keep some things back, you know. I don't like to spill everything at once. It's a good strategy to remember whatever it is you're up to. I used to have that little problem with the ladies when I was your age, spilling everything too soon. Maybe you have that problem too. 
tell me about the going to sleep voice, Rory prompts. Right, Papa Beaumont nods sagely. Young fellow like you don't need to hear me yammer on about some ladies that's long dead. I understand. So let me put it to you this way. You ever lie in bed at night and you're not asleep, but you're not still awake neither. You're in this in-between and there's a voice talking, maybe mumbling is more like it. And you apprehend it's been there the whole time, just background noise. The only difference is that, you, that, is that once you've tuned in, you can't not hear it anymore. Or maybe you don't have the famous, faintest notion what I'm talking about. But Rory thinks he does. In Memphis, in November, there can be nights when the wind roars incessantly, a black squall that scours the fields of Arkansas and batters the bluffs downtown before tackling the Stanton's snug brick house in Egypt Hills. But once, in the sleepless midst of one of those storms, he remembers how the wind suddenly died away, replaced by an eerie stillness that was a kind of emptiness, except at the bottom of that emptiness, somebody was talking. He didn't know who it was. He couldn't really make, make out any of the words being said. The voice just murmured on. He must have been four or five. He had a stuffed dog toy he sometimes used as a pillow, and he tried to convince himself the voice was somehow coming from inside the pillow, though he knew it wasn't. It was coming from somewhere else. And what it was saying, maybe he's just suggestible or eager to please. I think I might know what you're talking about. When I was little, but saying even this makes him uneasy. He thinks he remembers how he had the sense the voice wanted to take him somewhere he didn't really want to go, but would be powerless to resist. Say no more, his papa tells him. I reckon any number of folks might hear that voice. Most don't pay it any heed. Maybe it scares them, maybe it should. Say what you will, but I think Joseph Smith might have heard that voice. Now listen to what I'm saying. I got this one piece of property I never showed your daddy. You don't know nothing about it, not your mom neither. But years ago, I picked up these 20 acres down by the river. You wouldn't know it now, but in my time, I used to wander all over this county, just poking around, seeing what I could see. There's lots of secrets hidden in plain sight if you know how to look. But about those acres, forlorn spot, forsaken, good for nothing really, but when I first seen it, I sensed it might hold something special. They turn onto a dirt track that skirts a field and then quickly loses itself in thick brambles. We'll drop anchor here. Don't need to torment the old girl. Watch out for those blackberry stickers. They'll scratch the hell out of you too. I brought this. From Bathsheba's bed, he retrieves a machete. Your daddy ever teach you to use one of these? Didn't think so. Wonderful tool. I'll show you. You got to get the swing just right, but when you do. After a few hefty practice swipes, they take turns bushwhacking, his papa expertly, Rory tentatively at first, but soon getting the satisfying hang of it. They slash their way in for what seems at least half a mile. The brambles give way to the disorienting uniformity of a cane break. Onward, Christian soldiers, his papa sings out, marching as to war. Trailblazing is fun. A musical Rory can't help but join in. They're like two contending, exuberant crows. His papa's stamina astonishes, but also worries him. What if the old man overdoes their adventure and collapses? 
at least the way back, is marked by the carnage they've wrought. When they, when they at last reach the far end of the break, Papa Beaumont pauses, breathing heavily. Let me concentrate. I don't come in here too often. It's been years to tell you the truth. And I always made sure not to make the way in too obvious. That path we cleared will grow up in no time. I don't expect anybody else in the county even knows about this place anymore. Besides, what I'm going to show you wasn't even here when I, brought the, when I bought the property. It just came to light one day. Cosmic accident, I guess. You must be near the river. Can't you smell it? It's got to be somewhere close around here now. The day's dull light is fading. Rory glances at his watch. It's later than he thought. He wonders if it's wise to be out in wilderness like this with dusk settling in. He's about to suggest they head back when his papa says, see that? He points to a rusted coffee can perched on a rock ledge. Clever, don't you think? Nobody's ever going to take that as a signpost, but we're here. He strides forward, Rory follows. Thirty paces take them, take them to the edge of an unexpected precipice. They gaze down into a steep-walled, circular depression, so deep the trees growing at the bottom don't reach halfway to the rim. Something else, ain't it? Sinkhole. Cave collapse, probably. Limestone around here is porous as sponge. Karst, as your spelunking, spelunking daddy will be happy to explain. But that's not the reason I brought you here. Look over there. For once, I wish the light was a little better. Can you make out what it is I'm telling you to look at? Rory peers into the gloaming. World-class discovery, don't you think? I'll never bring your daddy here. Not little Nathaniel, either. They'd go hog wild if they laid eyes on this, and frankly, I wouldn't want to give neither one of them the satisfaction. Almost didn't bring you out here, to tell the truth. Not sure what got into me. Maybe the going-to-sleep voice might have whispered something to me. Who knows? Anyway, there was a rock slide some 15, 20 years back, and lo and behold, this was what got exposed. Gradually, in the murk, something faintly anomalous on the rock face, gray against gray, starts to coalesce. I've done some research. Folks in the so-called know would probably be inclined to identify this thing as a mosasaur, supposedly used to live around here. Back when this, as little Nathaniel likes to explain, was the bottom of the ocean. Can you make out those jaws? Double-hinged, just like a snake. Supposedly could swallow its prey whole. Now what do you think of that? In the frustratingly diminished light, Rory can almost distinguish the bas-relief of outsized, fiercely toothed jaws set in a massive skull. Then beyond that, the obscurer suggestion of a succinct abdomen increasingly elusive traces of a long tail as it fades into the torturous texture of the limestone. The whole thing might be 20 feet long. Within a very few minutes, it's dark enough he can't any longer make it out at all. Died out at the end of the so-called Cretaceous period, one of the mass extinction events that wiped the slate clean but neglected to remove the evidence. You see, your old papa's not exactly the ignoramus your daddy makes him out to be. And here's something else interesting. He used to be an old colored man, lived not too far from the here, down by the river. He and I got to talking one day about this and that. I always thought he was colored, but turns out he was bona fide Indian. 
Tomi's people in the old days used to dance what they called the dragon dance, told the story of a medicine man and the two boys he was training. One day they were out in the woods and this creature that lived in a hollow oak tree snatched one of the boys up in his jaws and swallowed him whole. But the medicine man used a spell to get the dragon to vomit him up, or maybe he came out the other end. One way or another he got free. So maybe it's in fact a dragon we was looking at. Why am I telling you all this? And why on earth are you shivering? It's not the least bit cold out. But we best be getting back, don't you reckon? Your mama's going to have a fit. She'll think you got swallowed up too. It's too dark to see the twinkle in his papa's eye, but Rory suspects it's there. He needs to ask a question. It's been on his mind for a while, but he's been reluctant to bring it up. They follow their bushwhacked steps back toward Bathsheba. The old man leads. A three-quarters moon is lifted above the horizon, too late to be of any use when it was needed but at least the path's illuminated. Papa, Rory says, you don't ever go to church, do you? As Papa stops in his tracks, turns around to face him. What kind of a question is that? And why are you asking me now? I don't know. Forget I even asked. Onward, Christian soldiers, then. The old man resumes his march. Just because I'm not church-going don't mean I don't understand certain things, don't have an easy explanation, he says over his shoulder. I'd be an idiot if I thought otherwise. I guess it's maybe the same with me, Rory tells him. Your poor mama told me what you did. You made a whole lot of trouble back there with that stunt. Hurt her pretty bad. You must have had a reason. I'm not asking you to explain yourself. I wouldn't do that to you. But maybe that's partly why I decided to bring you out here today. Bathsheba's a little cranky, but her motor finally turns over. Rory tries to memorize their route back to Damascus Landing. He has a feeling his papa won't be bringing him, here, bringing him here again, but then he's not so sure he ever wants to come here again either, though we might, sometime. He's still shivering, even though, as the old man pointed out, the night is really quite mild, and there's no reason at all for a boy to be shivering like this. Okay, and um, so now we jump uh, a few months ahead, um, and I should give you a bit of a backstory for this last scene. Um, Rory um, has been in a sort of off and on quasi-sexual relationship um, <clears throat> with one of his fellow students um, named Drew. Uh, and, it's, and Drew is the reason why Rory stopped going to church um, um, a few months ago and, and wounded his mother, um, you know, which was referred to in that, in that other scene. Um, Drew, however, uh, remains devoutly um, Christian. Uh, he goes to a church called um, Israel out of Egypt, uh, which will be referred to. Um, a little later. Uh, and sometime in the last few months, um, Rory, in an, in an attempt to, to intrigue Drew and draw him closer, uh, has told Drew an elaborate story about this thing that his grandfather showed him, though in Rory's translation of it, it's not a Mosasaur and it's not a dragon. 
uh, it's actually an angel uh, who was hurled to earth uh, during the Great War in, in heaven. It's, it's a, you know, it's a fossilized angel skeleton. Uh, and, and Drew is um, impressed by this story, as, as, as Rory has, has hoped. Um, um, because it's Memphis in the early 70s, um, Drew and Rory both, of course, have girlfriends. Um, and um, Rory especially has uh, campaigned to turn him and his girlfriend, Chloe, uh, into sort of the school's imperial couple, right? They are the glamorous, you know, heterosexual couple. Um, Chloe has got her own secrets and her own reasons for wanting to be in a relationship with dubious Rory. Um, um, and I, I hope you can see that, that, that Rory is gradually in the process of either tur turning himself or being turned into some kind of monster. Um, again, by pressures that, that, that he, he probably has no control over. Um, tonight's the night of the senior prom. The Hotel Luxor is a, is a late dynastic style high rise sited on the bluffs overlooking the Mississippi. All that matters, Rory tells himself, is that he's striding into a glittering ballroom, fashionably late, with Chloe Sturdivant on his arm. All that matters is that everyone, well, nearly everyone, turns, that all eyes are upon the imperial couple, that the packed room bursts into excited applause. That was always the point, right? He may be tone deaf, but he's not a bad dancer when he has to be. It's all just about counting, sort of like economics. He knows tonight's DJ music is insipid, secondhand stuff compared to that otherworldly hullabaloo at the Oasis, but at least nobody's going to go wild or get hurt to it. Lots of girls want to dance with him, but then lots of boys want to dance with Chloe, so it all works out. Tonight, nobody's jealous, everybody's generous. Soon they won't any of them have to see each other again. He tries with some success to keep his eyes off Drew, who looks princely in his trim-fitting tux. Predictably enough, somebody spiked the punch. After one sip, Rory won't touch it. There are too many doors it might unlock. Monogamous Drew sticks to his squat little Ruby. No girls approach to ask him for a dance. No boys bother Ruby either. Despite that, the two of them seem to be having a pretty good time. When they, cut, when they sit out a couple of songs, Drew fetches two cups of punch. Rory shakes her head no. Depositing herself on his lap, she wriggles to fit herself more comfortably. Drew nibbles her earlobe, looks vacantly into space, finishes his punch in a long swallow, then helps himself to her untouched cup. Rory can't bear to watch any longer. He realizes everybody is starting to get quite drunk, or at least the guys. Cole's sloshed, so is Rob. The adult chaperones seem oblivious, or looking the other way, or maybe they're getting secretly sloshed too. The deja vu sensation of an arm draping itself over his shoulder startles him. Hey man, Drew leans his head against Rory's. You know what? 
Rory squeamishly, disapprovingly, gratefully inhales the warm alcohol-infused carbon dioxide that just seconds ago was oxygen curling inside Drew's lungs. No, what? There's something I'm really dying to investigate. You by any chance up for a little investigation, Mr. Roratorio? Aren't the two of us done investigating? Rory moves to shrug off Drew's heavenly, perilous arm, but Drew won't relinquish him. I tried to get Ruby interested, but she's too scared, and Cal's not into it. I think he's still pissed about our night at the Oasis. So that leaves you. Want to see if we can get to the ninth floor? Is this a riddle? What's the ninth floor? There isn't one. I mean, there is. How can there not be if the Luxor has 14 floors? But it's closed off. The elevator doesn't stop there. Where'd you hear this? This guy who sometimes fellowships with, uh, with us at, at Israel out of Egypt. Pretty interesting character. You'd like him. The way Mr. Flood can tell a story is guaranteed to raise the hair on the back of your neck. So you want to know why the ninth floor is off limits? I imagine you're about to enlighten me. Bingo. Drew's rather excitingly drunk. So get this. Four or five years ago, some kind of demon took over one of the rooms, settled down, wouldn't leave. They had to conduct a full-blown exorcism. Mr. Flood didn't participate, but he was buddies with the exorcist. Thing was, at the end of the day, the exorcist couldn't guarantee the demon was actually cast out. So just to be safe, the hotel decided to shut down the whole floor. You're making this up. Did you make the angel up? But Rory didn't exactly make the angel up. He saw what he saw, or what he remembers he saw, or what he's chosen to remember he saw. He's in far enough, he has no choice but to believe in it. All I can go on is evidence, he says. And I think we should check this out, or does too much evidence scare you? Rory's not scared, though he does feel the hairs on the back of his neck bristle a little. Drew dangles the key. I can get us in. This isn't some impulsive misadventure he's proposing just because he's drunk too much spiked punch. Clearly, he's been scheming this for a while. So are you with me? Please say yes. Tell me I'm not going to regret this. What's to regret? There's a mystery here I think we both need to look into. Come. Rory wonders if he should say something to Chloe before ducking out, but he's lost track of her. He wonders if he's just committed himself to losing track of a lot more than just Chloe. Forsaking the ballroom, they climb dingy flights of service stairs, each landing marked by a number painted on the concrete block wall, each presenting a door that opens into an ordinary, well-lit, humanly-inhabited hotel corridor. At the ninth floor, they pause to catch their breath, the door is locked. Okay, Rory says, so you're not making this part up. But I still don't get why we're doing this. It's not like you. You mean breaking and entering. Look at it this way. If there is some kind of demon in there, why are you looking at me like that? Rory isn't aware he's looking at Drew in any particular way, only that he's looking, and that he's being looked at equally in return. 
Once again, without warning, they're on that tingling threshold of a secret space folded so intensely inside ordinary space, you could easily miss it if you weren't always, always looking for it. So what do you think, Drew urges? I think, Rory says, trying to break this spell, that maybe the demon's name is Rum. Oh, stop it. Drew launches himself from the wall he's been using to prop up his less than steady self. He swats at Rory, but misses. I'm being serious. I don't know why you're not being serious about this. Like it or not, I'm going in. Which is easier said than done. It takes him a while, but eventually he fits his key into the lock. Shouldering the door open, he tumbles into the dark corridor. Rory tells him he doesn't really have a choice. His friend's in no condition to be left on his own. Despite his impairment, Drew manages to find a wall switch. Dim ceiling lights flicker on, off, on. The corridor certainly looks neglected, though here and there a room service tray on the floor forlornly awaits retrieval. Drew tries one locked door after another. Midway down the corridor, one stands ajar. Bingo, he says. Rory refrains from pointing out that if any room was going to be locked, wouldn't it be the demon room? But Drew's already inside. Wow, Rory hears him say. Rory steps in after him. There's a musty smell, like when a possum got trapped in the tool shed and died. Light switch isn't working, Drew reports. But between the spasmodic light from the corridor and the steadier moonlight coming through the window, things can be made out. First impression tells him the room looks ordinary enough, though at second glance he sees the bed's been stripped to the mattress. Above the bed hangs a shattered mirror, some shards still gleaming in the frame, others scattered across the mattress. Randomly spaced, blackened spots the size of coffee cans to face the red carpet. A tobacco-colored seepage stains half the mattress. Rory watches skeptically as Drew, in detective mode, ransacks empty drawers and cabinets, gets down on hands and knees to dare a look under the bed, but there's nothing to discover except for a couple of orphaned coat hangers in the closet and a battery-dead travel clock on a shelf. In the bathtub, in the bathroom, the tub is half-filled with brown water. From the leaky shower head issues a slow, imbecilic series of drops their hollow plink pushing him to the verge of a memory that vanishes before he reaches it. It's just an empty hotel room in some unexplained degree of shambles. Okay, Rory says, now what? Drew doesn't answer. He stands alert, swaying a little, maybe to the beat of his heart, maybe to the pulse of the uncooperative demon. Rory holds his breath too. A long time ago, when he used to hear the going-to-sleep voice, it didn't scare him, but it didn't comfort him either. But there's no voice in this demon room, not even a murmur, just that singing in his tone-deaf ears that never quite goes away. Is it just me, Drew asks, or is the room spinning a little? It's just you. I think maybe I need to lie down for a bit. Don't, Rory says, you really don't want but Drew's already let himself collapse onto the polluted mattress, lying supine amid splendors of mirror, arms luxuriantly outspread. He laughs a low, bemused laugh. That was not a good idea, 
Rory tells him. I think I'm pretty stupendously drunk, Drew confirms. I've never been drunk in my life. But at least the room stops spinning when I close my eyes. Rory considers the squalid mattress. Eyes shut, Drew seems oblivious to the, me to the mess beneath him. Rory has the luxury of staring all he wants. So what's drunk feel like, he asks. Pretty cool, actually. Kind of, I don't know, loosening, if that's a word. They're silent for a while, waiting for the demon that may already secretly have arrived. Hard to believe there's an ordinary senior prom happening eight floors below them. This is so disappointing, Drew exclaims all at once. It could be right here and we wouldn't have a clue. Like I said, Rory tells him, demon rum. It was funnier the first time. Don't you think we should be heading back? Ruby and Chloe must be thinking we vanished into thin air. Poof, Drew says, disappeared. Wouldn't that be something? They never find us. We become an urban legend. Anyway, you go on back. I'm going to stay here for a little while. I like it here. If I don't come down in half an hour, send a search party. Or you could sit with me for a spell. I'm not going anywhere near that mattress. So why'd you get so drunk? I was watching. You did it on purpose. How's Ruby going to feel about that? Drew's eyes remain shut. He folds his arms across his chest. Ruby, he says. Of course she's going to be pissed and royally. She's going to get a ride home with one of her stupid little friends and cry her eyes out all night and have a fit the next time she sees me. But that's okay. Goes with the territory. Let's off some steam. Reality check, so to speak. I'm sure you know all about that by now, Mr. Roratorio. I wish you'd stop calling me that. You didn't answer my question. Okay, so I don't know the answer to your stupid question. Maybe the devil made me do it. Never hear that one before. Nothing that happens can be erased. Why even pretend time passes? Drew opens his eyes and looks at him. Does it scare you to see me like this? Roy hardly dares breathe. He's too afraid of dispelling something, though he knows what he's afraid of dispelling is the one thing he has to dispel. Why should it scare me, Drew? I'm not afraid of you anymore. I know you haven't forgotten anything, but I've gotten, but I've gotten over all that. I so wish you were drunk right now. Don't you think it would be cool to be in the same zone just for once, coincide or whatever? But I guess that's not happening, is it? His gaze doesn't waver. One hand wanders down to his crotch, lingers there. His going to sleep voice is calm. Let's just say we both still know who you are. You could take advantage of me. I'm drunk. I wouldn't be able to stop you. I'd be at your mercy. You could do anything you wanted, and I wouldn't resist. I'd totally give myself up. Rory wonders if the demon room is still spinning for Drew, or if it even ever was. This can't not be an ambush. Find your own way back from hell, he says. He's halfway out the door in righteous fury, but Drew's voice arrests him. Don't be stupid, Rory. You're not going anywhere. Come here, sit. 
He pats the mattress whose ruin he's become part of. We know your secret. Aren't you dying to know mine? Rory sits. He waits for Drew's secret the way the possum in the tool shed must have waited to die. I love you, Rory. Don't say that. Always have, always will. Drew laughs that bemused laugh. Can't help it. But you know what? I hate you. I have to hate you. I think you know that. Of course, Rory hates Drew as well. That's the ruin all boys who wrestle too much with each other come to. You're not going to like yourself so much in the morning, he tells Drew soberly. But when you consider how much worse it could have been, you'll definitely thank me. Come on, there's no demon here. It's just us. He reaches out his hand and from the soiled bed pulls the demon to his unsteady feet. Thank you.